I think that this idea of composer intentionality has the potential to reunite music theory with musicology. You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Thank you, Rachel. Welcome to And If Love Remains. This is your host again, Mike Levitt. And we've got the doctor in the house, Dr. Elise <laughs> Axel Patterson. Glad to, ha- glad to have you back, sir. Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. I love the intro now. It's awesome. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Now, we also have a, a good friend of the program. Um, we've had him on a couple of times, uh, Tom Posen. Um, he is our resident Beethoven expert, our resident musicologist. Um, he's the man, the machine, and the legend. I, I'm really, I'm excited <laughs> about it, to have this conversation with Tom. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoy talking with you both. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Um, I wanted to, to start off, by the way, I, I know you've had uh, a couple of, of triumphs in the ac- academic world um, lately in the last couple of months since we ha- we've had you on last. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the the, the paper that you had published and, and what's going on and how how's that yeah, happening? Absolutely. So the um, there's been some great news in the the Beethoven scholarship world. Uh, the the Beethoven Journal has been relaunched by the American Beethoven Society, which is run out of San Jose. Um, so they've relaunched the journal as a peer reviewed journal. That it used to be kind of a newsletter, so it wasn't peer reviewed. Uh, so now it's a peer reviewed open access journal. Um, and I have my first article in there. It's a, it's quite a, a large article. It's, it's normally articles are around, I would say 8,000 words on average, 8,000 to 10,000. Uh, but this one is, is pretty hefty sitting around 14,000. Uh, mm-hmm. but they let me publish it in full because it's a online open access journal. So there's no word limits. Uh, and that also means that I got to include some, some of my performances of the sketches, as videos. Um, oh, so how really, cool. Yeah, I'm really happy with the way the publication turned out and, and that, very excited to see where that's this gotta journal be, goes. That's got to be kind of revolutionary in, in music scholarship. Like, like one of the cool things about... Um, you know, obviously, we're, we've been dealing with words for, for forever, um, mm-hmm. and and now we get to add the idea of actually, you know, recorded material and, and album. I'm sure it's done before, but that is that's a pretty exciting thing to to do that as a as a paper. Yeah, definitely. I th- I think it's uh it's going to become more common over time as we move into the online sphere. And I'm a real supporter of the open access concept because mm-hmm. uh, we don't get paid when we publish. Um, and I'd rather not have some random publishing house get paid <laughs> instead of me. Yeah. I'd rather have it just open access. Yeah. So that's nice. Wow. That's cool. So is this, this was scholarship that you've been really working on for a while and we've had you on before to talk about it. Uh, and I'm hoping yes. we can expand on, you know, maybe what's new, what you've added. Uh, maybe there were secrets that you've, you'd told us and now it's sort of open. So, uh, what was in this? Yeah. And what was the topic? Yeah, so there's a couple findings in this paper. Um, one of them, I, I, I basically took the stance that I was going to try to understand Beethoven's intentions in his sketches. So I was trying to understand how he composed the work, 
Um, and I came up with several discoveries. I, I think that he probably modeled his first sketch after a Mozart piano concerto, uh, which is, I think, a pretty big finding in part because a lot of people talk about the Eroica Symphony as being the, the turn towards the Romantic era, so to speak, um, kind of the, the his heroic phase. Um, but I really do think that he actually turned back to look at Mozart uh, in order to kind of progress forward. So it, it's it's these these categories are of course just you know a convenience, but really yeah. it's a continuous spectrum. But uh, so that was one big discovery, and then I, I also sort of tried to think in the composer's mind and in their time, meaning that I tried to reconstruct the sketches and say what's good about these versus like what's wrong with him and what did he change? And so I was trying to really get into his head. Can I, can I jump in here? Sorry. Um, When you say composers intentions, uh, let me see if I'm understanding this correctly. And, and I think, you know, we all teach students ourselves, the three of us teach piano students. And when we uh, ask our students when they're playing a certain piece, we say, well, why did the composer write this note or that note or this dynamic level? And, and try to get into yeah. the composer's head so that they're recreating it. And is that kind of what you're doing just on a, on a different plane? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, ex- that's exactly the types of questions that I'm trying to figure out. You know, why did he write this versus any number of things? Mm-hmm. Um, so I should ask you both, uh, are you comfortable with that idea? Sure. Yeah. I think it's great to, I mean, uh, you know, it's really revealing of who we are inside and trying to delve into somebody's mind who we don't know and we don't have any mm-hmm. recorded thoughts of them, but it's, uh, and, and it has some assumptions built in, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ready for it. Well, I, I, th- I think, I think, uh, um, when you're talking about like, uh, I think it's a very complicated idea because you have, um, <laughs> <laughs> because, well, uh, Elise and I, we just did a, an episode on the Baroque period, um, mm-hmm. and specifically, you know, the playing the piano to the Baroque period, um, which is unique because they didn't have pianos as we have them today, um, mm-hmm. and that's just one complication. You know, yeah. you add you add that to the fact of like um, how we've heard these pieces for so long um, versus what what you know what was in the mind of the of the composer, you know, uh, 15 seconds before he wrote it on the page, like uh, all mm-hmm. those things, like it, it becomes like whose music does it become? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Tr- tradition yeah, so is important. So there's, there's maybe two angles we could, we could look at this. I know that, um, we all have performed in some capacity at some point. Um, and so one of, one of the first things is looking at a composer's intentions for performance. And then the other one, uh, which I'd like to spend a little more time on overall today with you both, is is trying to understand the composer's intentions in terms of music analysis. So I, I, uh, I'm i drawing on a couple different philosophers to, to think about all of these ideas. One of uh, my favorite new philosophers is, is a person named Randall Dippert. Um, and he talks about composer's intentions for performance. And he, he made a, an interesting observation. He said, uh, Gluck, I think, used a clarinet in one of his pieces. And the clarinet at the time would have been a very modern, strange-sounding instrument. It would have been a surprise for his listeners. And so 
the the high level intention of the composer was one in which he wanted to surprise his listeners with a new timbre, say. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting when you think about that in relation to historical performance practice. Because if you wanted to replicate uh, his intentions in a modern setting, um, <laughs> you would have to play that line not on a clarinet, which is common for people, right? That would no longer be surprising. Maybe on but a kazoo. Maybe you could play it, yeah, a kazoo or a synthesizer, <laughs> or, synthesizer or something right. you know, totally uh, new. And you, you create kind of a, a, a paradox in a sense, because on the one hand, you're uh, realizing the composer's high-level intentions, um, but you're disregarding their low-level intentions because they clearly wrote that passage for a clarinet. So that's something to consider. And, and I think that uh, Randall... Okay, is, I just got to say, I got to yeah. take one second and just because my mind just went kaboom. That was pretty <laughs> awesome. Because, I mean, yeah, I, that, yeah, what was the intention? Like, why does somebody, why does somebody write something? Yes. You know? Yes. Um, now... Yes. So, so there's a lot of issues with performance practice um, with this idea of intention and sort of recreating the intention. Um, now I can maybe pivot this a little bit towards music analysis. Um, so in, in 1970, like the late 70s, like around, around 77, um, and in the United States, there was a, well, there still is, the American Musicological Society, AMS. Um, and right around 1977, the Society of Music Theory split off from AMS. They, they, so it was a group of scholars that were all part of AMS that created a separate um, sort of sister society called the Society of Music Theory. And one of the goals of the Society of Music Theory was to focus on the music. So start with analyzing the music and then external factors could maybe influence analysis, but the idea was that the music was first rather than the, the context or the, or the historicism. Um, and so actually interpreting composers' intentions and in music analysis has been a more complicated issue in the last 200 years. Um, and so that's why I asked you if you were comfortable with it, because I think if um, I was berated for a very long time uh, for speaking on behalf of the composer, they would tell me, uh, do not speak you're not interpreting the composer's intentions because the composer is in their grave decomposing, <laughs> right? You can't, you can't mind read a dead composer. That's, that's what the, uh, the, the epigram saying is. Um, so let's not interpret their intentions. Let's just interpret the work. Have either of you heard that before? Yeah, but I actually, I, I don't know. Maybe I've <clears throat> come to it with the early music, uh, movement or performance practice movement, you, you get all these orchestras with period instruments. I feel that they're almost trying to attack it from the other end. But mm -hmm. um, when you say it's through, like even even the term music, uh, when you say let's look at it or the, the um, theory society was looking at the music, that is sort of an elusive term to me as well. Is that the sonic experience? Is that the um, score? You know, Is that the mm -hmm. music? Is it uh, what, yeah, again, this, the sonic experience for those living at the time, which, you know, we, we can never really recreate. So that's always, I feel been a debate, or at least in the last 40 or 50 years, been much, a much stronger debate about how do we recreate that? Because we don't hear it the same way and <clears throat> we don't experience it the, the same way. So yeah. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack in there. Yeah. 
so I, I'll tell you how I stumbled across this issue, and then I'll tell you kind of uh, what I believe to be the solution uh, to this issue is. So the first question I had was, I, I've been doing work on the Eroica sketches. Uh, so Beethoven died in 1827, and then the sketches were sold. And in 1880, Gustav Nadebaum, uh, an amazing German scholar, published on the Eroica sketches. He actually transcribed many of them, uh, and they're very high quality. And he even wrote up a little essay on them. It's it's not very long. It's about 31 pages. Um, but it's he, he wrote up a, a tremendous amount, and he, he wrote so many of the notes down. Um, and then since then, there really hasn't been that much work on the Eroica sketches. And, and that's surprising, given that the Eroica is perhaps one of the most famous pieces uh, discussed in the literature and the scholarly literature is it's a huge, huge piece, um, both like for its actual size and, and for what it's, what it's caused in the scholarly pipeline. Yeah. And so my question was why, why wasn't there more work done on it? And then I went into Nadebaum's analysis and Nadebaum said some really interesting things. He said, you know, actually the sketches do not reveal the laws by which Beethoven composed. He said something like, they, the sketches don't show us his inner spiritual process. Um, and what, is, what does that what, mean, I wonder? Yeah, and so, I can, and so that's, I, I started to look into that. And luckily, there's two scholars that wrote a dissertation on that topic, um, which I can talk about in a little bit. But um, it, actually what happened in the 70s, right around the time of the Society of Music Theory, there was a huge debate in Beethoven's sketch studies about whether or not um, the sketches held any value for, for our interpretations of the final work or even Beethoven's compositional process. Uh, and one of the leading sketch scholars, Douglas Johnson, said, I don't think that these, these sketches are that useful for analysis. And he went back to Nadebaum and said, you know what? I, they're, they're not showing us what we thought that they would. Um, so clearly, um, here in 2022, when you start a new sketch project, you have to justify why you're doing it in relation to all of these sort of counter efforts. And so um, that's, that's where I got into this whole okay, intentionality so, idea. And can I ask you, ask you like, why, why, why would analyzing a sketch not be indicative of what the composer was intending? I mean, if that's like, yeah. a, or what was their pre-draft or yeah. What, what were they, why would they say that? Yeah. So the first thing, um, so we'll, we'll, I'll do a little history going through the eras, which would be kind of fun. So in the 19th century, they came up with this concept of the organic work. Uh, so the 19th century, the idea of the organic work is also tied with this romantic myth of genius. Yeah. And you can think of uh, with Goethe. So Goethe at the time, he was a poet, but he's also kind of a scientist. He was studying plants and he was trying to figure out how plants developed and he, he thought there might be sort of an urpflanz, so like a, a main plant, like the seed upon which all other plants develop. So he was studying the plant metamorphosis and sort of the, the organism just kind of grows itself, right? Um, that's, that's, and so this, this metaphor of the organic autonomous organism became really popular in music circles. Um, and Nadebaum and, and A.B. Marx and other scholars picked up on this organic idea. And the organic unity of a work sort of became the yardstick for the aesthetic worth of, a, of an artwork. It's oh. sort of the heroic uh, 
you know, genius. Yeah. In a way it's, yes. It's that uh, individual, uh, individualism really came to the fore. And I think we're on the, maybe on the tail end of that, but yeah, the individual and the, the heroism of that is very important. Yes. And so it created a kind of a predicament, however, because the idea that the work, the work sort of became an autonomous living organism, right? Mm-hmm. So it has its own. But but the funny thing about organisms is that they grow up by themselves, right? Like you, mm-hmm. they, they eat and so forth, and then the plant just kind of develops. And so then this created a predicament about well, what's the role of the composer? Because if the work is organic, then it must have <laughs> developed organically, right? right. Um, it was either the muse and the composer is nothing more than a conduit. You know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and that's exactly how they put it. Um, and and Soli, uh, another scholar, she are we says talking something about like, the actual score? Because that's an inanimate object. I mean, it's not it's not living. Or is it this aura or the idea of the, the music that's sort of uh, an ethereal philosophical idea? Yeah, I mean, we'll have to we'll have to definitely solidify at some point what what the work is, so to speak. Um, but I think for now we could we could say that it, roughly it's the score. Okay. Um, um, yeah. Okay. But but yeah. So the the general conception in the 19th century was that the the work is like this organic thing, uh, mm-hmm. and then the way that Nodebaum characterized it is that Beethoven had some sort of spiritual process whereby he brought the work to life, and it's less about crafting the work and more about discovering it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also based in this kind of platonic idea where the work exists in this kind of realm of ideas yeah. and forms. Uh, and then you, well, you, you can see that out of it. Like even yeah. like Michelangelo, I see the stone. I saw the statue within the stone and removed the excess, you know, that kind of a right. idea. Yeah. Exactly. And so the idea that Beethoven is a genius, uh, genius gets tied in with this sort of theological um, method of, of discovering organisms in a sense, musical organisms. And so then the, if, if the work or develops organically, then how could the sketches show that? Um, they, they just, they couldn't, they, they would like the spiritual process that happens in his head, presumably would be one that is, is we could not explain because we, we don't understand why these things, what, what it means to develop organically. So then what's the purpose of the sketches? Yeah. The purpose for not uh, it's, it's quite stunning to be honest. He, he wrote, he did so many transcriptions. He was a composer himself too. And he says, you know, ultimately these sketches are useful for the biography of Beethoven. So kind of dating his works and figuring out when he was composing what and when, mm-hmm. um, but well, that's fine for a scholar, but what's the purpose for Beethoven? <laughs> kind of makes sense, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the 19th century romantic myth of genius okay Okay. now these ideas have continued uh and actually they were amplified in in the like let's say around 1950 or so uh there was a very famous essay essay in literary scholarship by wk wimsatz jr and mc beardsley uh called the intentional fallacy have have either of you stumbled across that i haven't heard that okay so this was a, a pretty landmark essay in literary criticism because it it said that, th- this is a quote, uh, the design or intention of the author is neither available nor desirable 
as a standard for judging the success of a work of literary art. So basically, whereas Nadebaum said that Beethoven has some sort of kind of transcendental, uh, almost priestly role in, in discovering a work, the intentional fallacy idea is that the composer or the author, they're dead, and we don't have access to asking them what their intentions were. Therefore, we should just interpret their work, not what their intentions were. Okay. Um, now, this idea became so popular and widespread, it spread into music theory, and you start to see citations of this article um, in the in the mid seventies by figures like, by, by especially by by Beethoven scholars like Philip Gossett and um, Joseph Kerman and uh, Leonard Meyer. And so this this becomes the kind of the backbone, in a sense, at least in my view, of the formation of the Society of Music Theory, because it's like if we can't access the composer's intentions, well, then let's let's not worry about that. Let's just study the work. Okay, I guess so, fair enough. I'm, I'm I, just wondering, like, okay, you, know, you study the work, and I don't I don't get their um, their end game or their the reason for studying the work, if it's just to figure something out, like in and of itself, it's a self-contained idea. Uh, usually we want to study a work to, you know, find out more about it or how to bring that to life. I don't know. It just seems like the theory end goal is, is a dead end with that, with that in mind. Yeah. Well, yeah, I should say that that perspective, the, the intentional fallacy idea is still quite dominant. I would say in the, in the vast majority of music scholarship today at least in the music theory. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, how Leonard Meyer put it. He's a, he was a, a, a huge music scholar. Actually, my, my advisor, William Kaplan, studied with Leonard Meyer. And so, uh, but Meyer said this, and I'll quote, the question of the artist's intention intrigues us and will not, uh, will not no doubt, continue to do so. Wait, sorry. And will, no doubt, continue to do so. Fortunately, however, Knowledge of the composer's intentions is not necessary for critical analysis. It is fortunate because such intentions are virtually impossible to ascertain, either from the music itself or from extra musical documentation. Even where knowledge exists, its interpretation and reliability is problematic. Knowledge of the composer's intention is unnecessary because a relationship is a relationship. Whether it was express, uh, expressly devised by the composer resulted from the orderliness of syntactic or stylistic syntax, or in rare instances, was the result of chance. And a relationship is a relationship only in the light of some cognitive act, whether conscious, intuitive, learned, or innate. End quote. Uh, It's weird to take in, but can I, sorry, I want want to jump in again. Um, The idea too of, whether or not Beethoven is a genius, I think hinges on this because it seems like the <clears throat> scholars up until let's say the seventies or, or up until now have said that, I, I don't know. I feel that if he's a priest, a priestly type that's just revealing the work that's already in existence, mm-hmm. um, doesn't that take away from his genius? Doesn't that mean he's just uh, well, and that's, I think, you know, a scribe? I think that's what I was kind of going to point at is like, it, that's another step removed, removing the composer. Like you, you've mm-hmm. now, you've now not just separated the composer from 
creating the work because it's an organic work, but now you've removed them from even having the intention, having an intention to create the work. Or, or a say in the work. Or, right. or is it or is it trying to say that he is a genius because work doesn't really matter. It's, you know, we always see Beethoven as this hardworking, you know, toiling over things. And we see Mozart as this, the pinnacle of genius because everything was just in his head and he wrote it down perfectly for the first time, which now we know is, is not true. I mean, he worked through a lot of things and, and uh, you know, he struggled, but, and it was a different language in a different time. Um, mm -hmm. But Beethoven, we, we see is also genius coming up with things. But I wonder if this idea of removing the work involved, the sweat and tears, um, is to elevate him to genius and just say, yeah, he's he's not immortal. Uh, whereas we want to see that there's work involved, and, and I think back to that uh, Nautabom as well with the with the plants and the and the growth, this sort of individual mm -hmm. hero. Yeah. I I think that's a big deal today because we, at least in the last decade or two decades, the the concept, at least in the states, of a a self made man you know, or self-made uh -huh. woman, but usually self-made man, I think is such a fallacy that we, that, uh, that hurts us a lot. You know, there mm -hmm. are no self-made people. And, and that goes back to the Mozart uh, quote too. And I'm sure you're thinking and tying this all in. I'm really curious to delve into that. Which, what Mozart concerto, you know, how is this, is this uh, transitional? Um, because yeah. you're always building greatness on something else. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm so well. Okay, I should say too, Theodore Adorno and Carl Dahlhouse. Are you mm -hmm. either of you familiar with them? Yeah. They're they're big uh, philosophers and, and music scholars. Anyway, Adorno said something similar. He said to ask about the composer's intention is to seek a criterion extraneous to the work and almost inaccessible to knowledge. Once the objective logic of the artwork has been set in motion, the individual producing it is reduced to a subordinate executive organ. Mm. And Carl Dahlhaus said something similar. That the intentions of the author do not constitute the essence of what a work signifies is hardly disputed anymore. So you can see that the, they've, uh, they've adopted the intentional fallacy like 100%. Can you make the case that like a work um, can become bigger than the composer's intention? Like yes, it, all absolutely. of a sudden, it then can, you know, as we as we you know analyze it, um, it becomes more important as 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 more. It's like a it's like a paper. The more it's cited, all of a sudden that paper becomes more important. The more mm -hmm. you know, Beethoven is is building on Mozart, and so all of a sudden that that seed, <laughs> you know, becomes yeah. the more important seed. Mm -hmm. And and so the the composer without intention has you know created something maybe maybe great. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure where I'm going, but that, that seems that yeah. seems to no, be a you're, possibility. You're getting at something. You're getting at a very important distinction that I'll elaborate on, and and maybe a little further down the line between yeah. meaning and impact. But yeah. let's let's return yeah. to that. Okay. Um, Presumably, okay. So in, in analysis classes, um, you often hear people say, "To my ears, this passage sounds like X." Have you heard uh -huh. that before? Yes. Uh, and then. There, but there's a very funny thing that happens in analysis classes because a student says, so when I listen to this passage and they're, they're analyzing it with the score, right? So they're, they have the, the chords and they're looking at it and they say, to my ears, like I'm interpreting it like X, Y, and Z, right? Then the professor says, oh, but yeah, I'm not hearing that. They say, that's what they say. And then they say, it's like this. And then they give reasons 
Y, X, and 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 whatever. Uh, so what's happening in this situation? <laughs> because it would seem, from an outsider's perspective, that two people are arguing about their subjective experiences about the music. For sure. Right? Uh, how strange, right? <laughs> in a classroom. But the student doesn't recognize that that's what's happening, actually. And neither does the professor, because the professor is saying, no, actually, there's a better interpretation of this passage, right? Well, yeah. Uh, are they, I don't know. I maybe, and, and I'm just thinking about now teaching ki- kids, and <clears throat> we we did this exercise with the piece. Sorry to interrupt. And uh, oh, I've known the piece, and I've taught the piece. Uh, you know, Ravel, and and people would hear it, and I would say, well, what are your thoughts and feedback? And you know, this is high school, so there there are no wrong answers, and people will mm-hmm. say things that just aren't in my cultural you know, sphere and the, oh, well, it sound, it reminds me of this rap song. I, I was like, well, I never thought of that. Or they said, <laughs> right, they right. gave an adjective to it that I thought, oh, I've never thought of it as, as being portrayed or, or exemplified in that adjective. And I didn't want to say, no, it isn't. And it should be like this. But of course, my experience was that it, it wasn't that and there was a better reason, but I tried to see it in their view and like, oh, okay, I can sort of see that. Yeah, I, that makes sense. So maybe right. we can have two things coexisting, my idea of what it is. And I can tell them what my idea is because I've had a lot more experience with this kind of music and what the traditions are. And maybe, you know, we can both inform each other. But I don't know. I don't see any clear cut. But I, I think, I think what, what, uh, you, when you get to like when a, a professor is trying to teach a music student what, uh, you know, a passage is as you as you described this scene, you know mm-hmm. these are these are students that are that are there trying to suck up knowledge to learn like what what do I what do I not know yet? Um, mm-hmm. And the professor is is telling them, well, you didn't hear that correctly, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, and and this is based on the intentional fallacy. I, I think actually when you look, and I'll get back to your point, Elias, too, but when when you look at what's happening, what's what's really occurring is that the student says. And this is an intentionality-focused locution of, of what I previously said. The student says, "I interpret Beethoven's intentions to be X and Y for for this passage." And then the composer, the the, the sorry, teacher. not the composer, but the the teacher would then say, "No, that's unlikely to be what Beethoven's intentions were for this mm-hmm. for these two notes, right? Uh, right. Like, let's 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 actually make this a little more concrete. So here's the eroica. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, this it's an E-flat, just a big E-flat triad, and then he dips down to the C-sharp, and the question is, why do you write the C-sharp, right? And you could say, well, he just wanted to mix it up, right? Mm-hmm. He just was tired of the E-flat major triad. Maybe. Maybe. But what, actually, what, what I would say is that Beethoven intended for the listener to imagine at this moment, to imagine a modulation to yeah. uh, another key. And, and actually, when you look at historical sources, that's exactly what they said. They said when they got to the C sharp, uh, I imagine that we we're modulating to another key. Right. And so that's, that's, a, that's his intention. He wants the listener to to be receptive to the idea that that all of a sudden, right at the beginning of the theme, 
that we're in a very unstable place and we might very well go into another theme or another, sorry, another tonal area. So that's, that's his intentions. But what do you say to the person who says, well, he just wanted to move down because uh, it was a, you know, I don't know, because he liked the sound of the C sharp on his piano, right? Um, who's right? And how do you determine that? Well, I, I don't know if there is, yeah, there's, there are probably other reasons too. And, and this is where um, I would say, I don't know if it matters. It, it is interesting and maybe it does matter, but uh, can't you have two parallel paths whereby uh, if you're interpreting or performing this work, that does matter. And another where it's like, it doesn't matter. It's just in and of itself. It's like not programmatic. It's, it's absolute music. So it's just beautiful, you know? Yeah. Well, I think uh, the way that I was describing it, um, the first way I, I described it in, in absolute technical terms and that it's yeah. like, we're using words to describe like modulation and so forth, mm -hmm. but, but well, doesn't the modulation also assume that the listener has a cultural awareness of what has happened or what's expected anyway. Like, I don't think some of my students yes, or most yes. of them listening would, would hear that C sharp and even understand that it could modulate because that's just not in their, in their vocabulary. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And, and this, th we could relate it back to literary criticism. <laughs> when, when you have a, a book, um, a book over time can have its meaning change, right? So let's say the yeah. author writes it for a particular audience, and then you know, thirty years later, they it's interpreted as a, an expression. Like let's say you know George Orwell's nineteen eighty four. Right. It's being interpreted as sort of a a book, you know, for today. It's interpreted in the light of the pandemic and so forth. But when right. he wrote it, he wasn't thinking of of the pandemic, so well, it changes its meaning. And different people interpret it like, like, you know, somebody with, with a, maybe a little bit more, um, you know, left mindset would look at that book differently than somebody with a more right mindset, Absolutely. you know? And so Absolutely. all of a sudden it becomes, you know, yeah, and, twin and the interpretations. Same person, yeah. The same person reading it, you know, I read that in high school and I might read it differently today or. Yes. So. Now here's where we can return back to this idea of meaning in the work versus its mm -hmm. impact. Mm -hmm. So the meaning of the C-sharp is one that Beethoven gave the C-sharp. But the impact of the C-sharp, how we might interpret it later on, how, how it might make us feel, um, you know, how it might relate to other works and so forth, that's, that's its impact. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I think I like distinguishing that. between something that is intrinsically mm -hmm. intended by the creator versus something that is freely interpreted is the impact. And that, mm -hmm. I've, I've taken this from John Farrell. Uh, he writes on authorial intentionality. Mm. Wait, so do you, oh, is your yeah, argument that we can um, find out or figure out what Beethoven's intention was, either through the sketches or through the work that you've done? And that, that ha are you saying also that that hasn't been done or it's been attempted and, and scholars have said there are many reasons and we don't need to worry about them? Well, um, yeah, so I, 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 I'll, okay. My answer is that <laughs> I, I am interpreting, I, I am interpreting Beethoven's intentions. That's what I'm doing. I'm interested in discovering what the historical Beethoven meant when he wrote his music. That's, uh -huh. that's, that's, and I'm very honest about that. 
Um, and uh, so I, I've written. Why, now, uh, yeah, why is that important? Why? Why is it like like it may seem obvious, but but with all of this background of of the intentional fallacy, I think we have to ask the question: Why is it important to know the intention of the composer? Yes, that's that's a very good question. Uh, so let me let me flesh out this and uh, this anti-intentionality idea a little bit further. I think it's important okay. to really. Uh, so, so this is kind of the modernist view that I've described earlier about the work being sort of a, a stable entity that we can examine without the author or the composer. So you kind of just cut off the author or composer from their work and you just focus on the work. Yeah. Um, well, that, that has been kind of extended in postmodernism. And the idea is that there are interpretive communities in a sense. So one interpretive community might interpret the meaning of a work to be something and another one might interpret it to be something else. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and they're both true. That's the idea of postmodernism. There is no stable singular truth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now there are problems with that, that we'll get to, but um, perhaps the most salient and, and, and this gets to your question, Elias, why is it important to interpret the meaning? Well, if you want to say, how has the meaning changed? So how are people interpreting it later? You know, do, how did they view it? You can only know how it changed in reference to its original intended meaning. And there's, huh. a, there's a very strange thing when, when we're interpreting artworks, we're interpreting them because we recognize that they were made by humans. That's important. There's a huge distinction. We interpret things when they're made by humans, when they're artifacts, not when they're naturally occurring objects. Now, the, the funny thing is, is that music scholars have tried to approach music as scientists approach natural phenomena. So studying things out there, right? So if you study earthquakes or whatever, you're, you're a scientist. And, and music scholars thought, well, if we could basically be like music scientists and study the works, then that's what we would do. But the problem is that someone made those works. They're not naturally occurring. Um, and so that, that requires, therefore, that we interpret the intentions of the person who created it. Mm -hmm. What if we <clears throat> – I, I, this is interesting because I hadn't thought of um, – you know, in the science world, I mean, the natural world, there are just beautiful things are that are created, and mm -hmm. you know, by we'll say natural forces, but even by animals, which are um, not inanimate objects. You know, I'm thinking natural forces like a waterfall would would be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And do we interpret the waterfall? I don't know. I think some people do, but then they just uh, ascribe it to well, you know, either God, you know, that kind of idea, or just nature mm -hmm. is beautiful. Um, but if we see a, a cobweb. You know, a really interesting, uh, we'll say, wow, that, that spider was so artistic or creative, but you know, they're all the same. Right. So we just say, well, all those kinds of species of spiders do that. So it's not that amazing, but it is amazing as a piece of art. Um, yeah. Well, and you can so, take like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your no, no, question. Go ahead, go ahead. I, yeah. I was just no, going to no, say, like, it, I'm it, just kind of, <laughs> it takes, a, it takes, it seems to me like it takes a mind to do that. Like, so if we're look, if I'm looking at, I'm thinking about like, one of my favorite movies, The Power of One. And there's a scene in there where they're looking at a waterfall and the the teacher turns to the student and see, says something to the effect of like, you know, one change can happen, you know, just by one drop and, and see what can happen, blah, blah, blah. So all of a sudden that waterfall becomes a symbol of, you know, whatever they're discussing at the time. Um, 
but on its own, just sitting there, it's just a waterfall. <laughs> right. Know? And, and so it takes a mind to interpret anything. So I can see what you're saying, Tom, like, you, like it takes a mind to create a work. And so that work, like it, it doesn't, it doesn't happen with, without some sort of intention. You have to, you, yeah. if I understand you correctly, you're saying you have to like know what that is in order to know what, what it is not or what it, or what it yeah, has turned to interpret into. It's, it's, it's meaning. Let yeah. me, let me give you another example. That's not uh, music. So, um, and this is a, I found to be a really helpful example to describe something called functional analysis. Um, this is by Robert Cummins. He's another philosopher. So he, he, he creates this example. So there's, there's two people, uh, X and Y, and the person X asks person Y, and they're, they're looking at a sundial and the person says, why is the gnomum put there? Like what not, they say, what, why is the gnomum there? Like, what is that for? The gnomum is the part that kind of, uh, it's, it, it's perpendicular to the base. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the person Y says, well, the gnomum is there to project a shadow so that we can tell time. Right. So that's a, that's, at its most basic, a functional analysis. So we say, why is X there? If if we can explain the function of X, then we then we satisfy the explanation, right? So that's that's what functional analysis is broadly, and we yeah. do that in music all the time. You know, why is this note here? And right. then we the, describe the, the function of it. The purpose of the leading tone is to lead to the tonic, for example. Exactly. Well, hang on. So wait, is there another interpretation, a non-functional? Is that where you're going? Well, or is that just gonna, show? Yeah. so what I'm where I'm going ultimately is that functional analysis is incredibly useful. Um, but funnily enough, you also see function. Not, I don't know how funny it is, but you see <laughs> functional you see functional analysis in, in biology and medicine. So, for example, why is the heart there? Well, the heart pumps blood to the extremities of the body, right? Uh, and so, a lot of medicine it uses this terminology. But we have a problem because when we say, well. Why is why is the heart there? Well, it pumps blood. Okay. Well, why is it pumping blood? Oh, it's for the organism because it needs blood. Okay. Well, well why, why does the organism <laughs> need blood? And we get to this teleological problem where we basically have to describe the function of the organism, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, yeah, why is it living? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like who, right. who made who made this live? Was this? And then then basically there are two ways to do it. One of them is theologically. And then the other one is biologically, and and both are are debated heavily. And then you get into the the deep dark realms of right. philosophy. Now you're, now you're in metaphysics, all just like that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a snap of your finger. It's a little kid always asking why, why, why. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let's turn that back to the to the sundial. You can satisfy the functional analysis because you recognize that someone put it there. So someone put the gnomum on top of the base. To, to project the shadow, right? So actually, when you're doing the functional analysis, you're interpreting the intentions of the person that put it there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at a note and a score and we say, why is the C sharp there? That means that we, in we interpret there to be some intention behind the C sharp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that intention lies with the composer. Well, I yeah, I wonder if that's because of an expectation of what's... Uh, <clears throat> what's sort of in the realm of, of uh, typical. What I mean is you've, we've just had a lot of notes outlining E flat major 
and then something mm-hmm. that's outside of that box. I, and I remember <clears throat> talking with one of my students a long time ago, uh, an adult student who had some interesting things. And uh, Mike, you mentioned the leading tone, always leading to the tonic. And we would have this discussion, like, why? Why does it have to? Mm-hmm. I would play a 5-7 chord. And I was like, see, it kind of goes to this naturally. He's like, why? And I would say, yeah. well, it can't go to this, like a you know Neapolitan or something. It just sounds w- weird, whatever weird means. He's like, well, I don't see why not. Sound there. Uh, you know, if I had to put a judgment on them, th- there's no inherent reason why one is better than right. the other. And I said, well, there right. are certain rules and traditions. And, you know, that's that's tough to, you have to have some basis uh, well, and definition I, to work And that work goes from. back to like, you know, w- what are you trying to communicate? Like that leading tone yes. goes to the tonic because it communicates like a home base. It's 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 mm-hmm. going there. And it, so if you go somewhere else, that means you're subverting that home base somehow. Yeah, if and, if you define that as home, maybe some other tonality could be seen as just a different home. You know, that's what yeah. part of his argument was. And and also you say about this intentionality of the composer, you know, why did he have that? What if there are multiple reasons? Uh, it's hard to know the change of meaning if we don't have this singular kernel or truth of it. But what if that singular kernel isn't singular? You know, it's multiple. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it might very well be. Um, so one of the one of the things that happens that sometimes people use to discredit this idea is a, well, there's two things. They talk about um, the conscious decisions of a composer. Uh, and they say, well, maybe they wrote this unconsciously. Uh, so I, I can a, defend against that. a great argument. That. Yeah. Um, but also they, they also say, um, yeah, it, like let's say a passage, uh, a listener hears it in two different ways. And if it, there is a possibility that the composer intended for the music to express two different interpretations. Um, and in fact, in, in many 19th century music, I have a paper on, on Gershwin where he, he makes the music appear to express two different keys at one time. So it, it's, that seems to be his intention. Um, I think many, most of the time there's a stable interpretation, but, but certainly it's a possibility, but we would see it by interpreting the intentions of the creator behind the work. Um, so let's, let's get to this, uh, <laughs> this idea this of conscious cool. and unconscious. <laughs> yeah. So the, the unconscious and unconscious is a funny one. So let's Brahms, uh, I think it's the second symphony, the first and last movements have uh, a similar sounding theme and Leonard Meyer asked the question. So we observe this relationship, right? And the first and last movements. So how do we know if Brahms didn't do that by accident? <laughs> Right? What, what, right. what if that was the result by an accident, like, or whether, whether it was unconscious or conscious, right? So there's three things that are, that we need to untangle here. The first one is that, uh, conscious and unconscious actually turns out to not be a very helpful distinction. So when I'm writing a sentence, for example, I'm thinking about the meaning that I want to express in the sentence. So that um, would seem to be my, my conscious focus. Um, and you might you might think, well, all of the fingers that are pressing those keys when I'm typing, mm-hmm. um, those are those are unconscious actions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but then, if you're a copy editor and you're reading my sentence and I misspelled a word, you would correct it because you would assume that I intended to spell that word correctly, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. 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 <clears throat> so even even the smallest uh, parts are are intentional. They just may not be uh, at the center of our, our focus. Yeah. Now, the other question about the accident is is slightly more complicated because it, it has a sort of a, 
uh, it puts the, the cart before the horse. And so consider, and this is another example that John Farrell, Farrell uses that I, that I love, the difference between a wink and a blink. A wink is something that we interpret because we, we, we interpret it only because we assume to, it to have intention behind it. Yeah, right. Um, but otherwise, we, we, don't, we don't normally observe blinks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and they happen all the time. And so there's a difference between something that is an intended action and something that is an event. And so if we notice a relationship, we've already we've decided that there's some intention behind it. Yeah, that's right. Because we're interpreting it. Yeah. So, and, and even if, and even if it was an accident or a mistake, even, um, you know, that in itself, like becomes, becomes intentional because he left it there. Like there's a reason he left it there. Well, that's, yeah. That is that maybe the third piece is like, even if it wasn't an accident, he definitely listened (laughs) to it again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He left it there. Um, no, that's, that's it. Um, yeah, I, I found a, a very extraordinary letter uh, from Beethoven to Breitoff, Breitkopf and, and Hartel, which is the publishing company. And Beethoven used to send, he used to correct all of his works. And his corrections are absolutely remarkable because uh-huh. he corrects the smallest of notes. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently there was a quarrel about a 32nd note in the second movement of his opus, um, what is it? Opus 127, the Adagio second variation, measure 10. There's a 32nd note in there. And he writes an entire page on why he wrote this 32nd note. <laughs> it is unbelievable. And he <laughs> explains insane. it. Yeah. That, that's and awesome. It's so cool. It's, it's the same explanation that I kind of was alluding to earlier with, you know, if I type a word wrong uh, and then correct it, like, you can habitual actions were usually the result of some prior conscious action, right? Mm-hmm. So they right. become habitual over time. So probably when Beethoven was composing that note, he didn't think through that whole explanation. Like that's highly doubtful. But if we asked him, you know, why did you write this? Well, he could give you a very, very precise technical explanation for why he wrote that note. Now, was it because the um, the publisher was trying to take it out or asking, why did you put this and is this what you meant? And then he had to defend it or or what was that? Uh, yeah. So basically some musicians were performing and they said, did he write a, a D flat or a C? Oh, and okay. it turns out if you if you interpret the C, the harmony doesn't change. And if you interpret a D flat, the harmony change changes very subtly. Uh, and in, in his letter, Beethoven says, it's a it's it's a D flat because I intended you know for the harmony to change because if I did this other thing it would destroy the melody and blah 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 and um, and then he says I'm so glad that some good musicians interpreted my intentions correctly. <laughs> What's interesting about this is so at least in that case he answered the question. But there you know I, I remember dealing with um, my my thesis topic which you know very well with Mussorgsky. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. are different um, lineages, if you will, of of the truth that come down to us based on, okay, who wrote it or who didn't. And he was a very raw composer and not mm-hmm. as maybe refined as somebody like that Beethoven. He didn't, he didn't toil or work through things, although I'm, I'm sure he did. And there are some sketches, but um, 
a lot of his works and notes were corrected. And that's how we've, it's come mm-hmm. down to us. And there's still debate, you know, is this a C or this a B flat? And, and I yeah. think the sketches I've seen, it's very obvious what it is. And yet I've seen some very good additions that say it's very obviously not that. I'm like, well, how, <laughs> yeah. how on earth did yeah. you read that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, this there's actually there's another issue about all this intentional stuff too about what the what they intended because because a composer can change their their intentions over time uh there's a very there's a very famous one in literary scholarship today that i think would resonate uh with a lot of listeners and that's uh, with uh, harry potter jk rowling uh was asked uh if dumbledore had been in any relationships or had any loves and she said well, no, I've always thought of th- thought he was gay. <laughs> wow. And and so then uh, big fans, there was a huge debate on the internet because the question was, well, I, I didn't have that interpretation of Dumbledore being gay <laughs> at all in the text. Mm-hmm. Like it never and so then you go and scour the text and you look for are there any clues to this? Yeah. Right. And 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 the scholars basically there isn't anything. He's he's rather a- asexual. Um, if not completely asexual right. in his depiction. And so then the question is, well, what do we do about that? Yeah. The, 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 the author just said, you know, are we supposed to interpret Dumbledore as gay now? Well, from the, from, and, w- and what does that and say does about that J.K. Rowling? Yeah. 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 And what you does know, that matter? How does, how, um, does, how, does she, how does she see gay people all of a sudden? You know, like all of a yeah. sudden all these other questions come up. Yeah. yeah, same thing with the goblins, and I've heard with, with you know Gringotts and the Jewish stuff. She's come out with some some not so uh, not so positive, let's say, views, you know, um, of Jews, mm-hmm. let's say, and and so uh, that scene is okay. Well, may, maybe it's not good writing because of that. It's very hard to separate the the man or the woman in this case from the the art, from the you know, yes. man from the music, like now- Wagner. There's there's a couple ways to 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 look at the is Dumbledore gay question, mm-hmm. and luckily uh, there's been some some scholarship on this, and so wow. hilariously enough, uh, yeah. I discuss whether Dumbledore is gay in my dissertation. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so, uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that that was gonna make it in there, but it certainly <laughs> did because it's it makes a a very poignant point, and that's that even authors or composers can be deceiving about their intentions. So. You know, if someone says, well, what did you intend here? Well, I wanted to, uh, you know, maybe a composer would say, I wanted to invoke the celestial bodies colliding, you know, whatever. Like, we can interpret whether that intention was true or not by examining their work. Uh, So their intentions are revealed in their work. And and so it, it gets pretty philosophical and complicated wait are you uh, saying that they would say that and it's actually not what their intention was they're just saying that as yes. sort of a well yeah gaslight. i think you can see that all the time you can see that like i think about star wars you know how many how many interviews has george lucas said that you know this or that the other thing and they're completely the opposite of what ends up happening you know it's and and you know, oh yeah star wars was all thought out in my mind from the beginning oh it was just a one-shot you know takeoff and i think we've kind of come to a, a full story of what that actually looked like but uh-huh. you know, over time, that that story has changed <laughs> so but much. Yeah. That might just that might just be for the show, sh- uh, you know, show of it and to yeah. create hype. So, and why wouldn't a composer do the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and but I think yeah, basically the the conclusion of the article. Um, well, another example, like if someone said, 
uh, like imagine if JK Rowling, and this is what this writer says, um, Irwin 2015 says, it, what if, uh, or I've always thought of Hermione as a, as a vampire, <laughs> right? And then it's like, wait, I didn't see any vampire text. But, but if you're, if you're a person who's obsessed with vampires, yeah. or let's just say you really like vampires, um, for those listeners that, that are vampire lovers, um, you might, you might really like that interpretation, right? So aesthetically right. that's, that's pleasing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might adopt that interpretation, yeah. but we would, we could argue that that's not in the meaning of the text. Yeah. So the impact of the work is one in which you prefer to see Hermione as a vampire. That's fine. But that's not what the author intended when they wrote the work. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But either so, one of yeah. those, Hermione being a vampire or Dumbledore being gay or not, those will affect, um, the, uh, the, the interpreters, the readers. Yes. And one of them, um, J.K. Rowling has mentioned nothing about because it wasn't even in her, you know, radar on her radar. And the other she did mention, and we don't know if it's true or false. And I wonder if it matters. Yeah. So well, the the funny thing, this author who is writing on on uh, J.K. Rowling and like basically looking into whether her intentions uh, are true or not, they say this uh, quote: "To remove any doubts, Rowling could make public her notes and backstory, writing that clearly sh- writings that clearly show that she had intended Dumbledore to be gay while she was writing. If she did, that would firmly establish for the actual intentionalist that Dumbledore is gay." It would be paranoid at that point to suggest that she forged the notes and backstories. And mm. I, I just love that quote because it's basically like if we have access to dumb, to J.K. Rowling's planning materials, then we'll we'll really understand her intentions. And voila, we have access to Beethoven's to Beethoven. planning notes. Exactly. But but exactly. with the with the J.K. Rowling example, I mean, she, now it's so easy to fabricate something. She could create something and say, "Oh, I, I wrote these a long time before." And would that again would that matter if? Uh, because just hearing whether Dumbledore, it's like when you you're in a courtroom and you say something and then uh, somebody says, uh, "I object," and okay, I I retract my statement. It's like yeah, but the jury's already heard it. So yeah. it doesn't matter if it's on the public record or not. They've it's in their minds. Yeah. So clearly, I think intentionality actually is is so intrinsically human. Um, it's it's unbelievable. We we interpret one another's intentions at all times, every day, all the time, mm-hmm. and we're effectively mind reading one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to do that to have a socially cohesive system. Right. Um, now we may interpret someone's intentions incorrectly, mm-hmm. um, but we should still try to interpret their intentions correctly. And so that, that requires like a firm knowledge of the context and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this leads me to maybe the, the final point uh, in interpreting the sketches of, of Beethoven. One of the questions that I pose is, well, okay, if you want to interpret these sketches and you want to understand his intentions, shouldn't you use a historically informed theory? Right. Uh, so what would that be? Could you define that? And then the, then like uh, the theory that he would have been uh, privy to, let's say. Okay. okay. Um, um, so something like, to, so to interpret the C-sharp in relation to how he would have expressed it, because the way he would have expressed it, he would have said, um, the C-sharp has a, a seven five figure on it and then when it re- resolves to the d it has a six four figure but then that gets five three and then abandoned 
Uh, so he would, he would describe it with a figured base and, and uh, kind of a basso fundamental, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so this, this raises a serious question because I interpreted the sketches with the theory of formal functions, which uh, William Kaplan wrote in his treatise in 1998. Mm. Right. Uh, so it would seem to be, at first glance, that I'm using a, a theory that's anachronistic with Beethoven's uh, own compositional process. Right. Well, how, how do you how do you put that you know square peg in a round hole type thing? Right. Yeah. So what that where that's led me ultimately is to trace the basically connect the theory of formal functions to Beethoven's pedagogy. So at in the moment, I'm I'm reconstructing how he would have learned how to compose and connecting it through a long lineage of treatises from the 18th century uh, on thorough bass and partimento. And, and oh, uh, wow. luckily, that scholarship is, is really taking off right now. So there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, so anyway, I'm connecting all of that to the theory of formal functions. And I think it's sort of the missing link to understand Beethoven's compositional process. So, so can I can maybe re- try to re-say that? So yeah. w- what you're trying to do is, um, for example, uh, uh, um, Bach, you know, he would he would have um, known counterpoint and would have used the ideas of counterpoint to create kind of his ideas of a fugue and and his compositional ideas was was informed by counterpoint that turned kind of mm-hmm. more into figured bass and so um you're using functional theory in the say, to say okay well let me back up so you're saying that that beethoven used fi- this figured bass to inform what we now see as um functional uh theory is that close um yeah okay yeah it's it's this this is definitely the most technical part i would say of my dissertation project. I, I feel like it's funny, I'm just getting to it now. <laughs> I have <laughs> I have the end part. I'm interpret because I think I think I was quite successful actually in interpreting Beethoven's intentions. Um, they might very well be wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm open to better interpretations. You know, that's and I'm okay with that. When as soon as you uh, adopt composer intentionality, you adopt the fact that you might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't if you don't adopt and co- composer intentionality, and it's just you can just say, oh well, that's how I heard it. But actually, yeah. I don't really care how anybody heard a piece. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like we can all have our own subjective things, and that's fine. Those 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 might be interesting. That's a but I'm actually adding to that, Tom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of uh, pushing pushing back and harder than than necessary, really. Right. But, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, I, okay, so the the theory of formal functions uh, that is is a specific type of functional analysis used to, to study uh, this classical music, basically. And it's used to say, how is a particular part of the music expressing its temporality? Um, and I, I think I mentioned that on the last podcast mm-hmm. or at, at some point, you know, sort of like in the middle of your day, while you're eating breakfast, you can have a beginning part of your breakfast ceremony, right? Right. For, for me, it's espresso and then you know, whatever. And so, but the breakfast, so that's the beginning of your breakfast, which is the beginning of your day, which maybe is in the beginning of a week. Anyway, time can be expressed in very complicated ways. It's, it's hierarchical and, you know, 
So basically, the theory of formal functions is a mechanism for describing how parts of the music express their temporality, their sense of time. Mm. Um, and so basically, I'm connecting that theory um, to, to, to the pedagogy, to this historical kind of, you know, how Beethoven would have actually learned how to compose. And I think that one of the, one of the other missing links is that Beethoven learned the vast majority of how to compose while he was in Bonn. Uh, most people focus on when he went to Vienna to study yeah. with Haydn and Albrechtsberger. Yeah. Uh, he was supposed to go study with Mozart, but unfortunately Mozart died too early. Mm-hmm. And so everybody focuses on on those, but actually he learned the vast majority of his composition in Bonn with Gottlob Nieb, or Nief, uh, Nief, who was yeah. an organist. Yeah, yeah that and makes so, sense, his earlier training. I, I have a quick question, sorry to, to butt in yeah. here, but I'm just thinking that, um, so are you saying that with this formal uh what did what did uh, what did you call it? No, I, I can't remember the formal analysis functional. type functional formal function. Yeah. This analysis, which is sort of a new-ish theory that Beethoven yeah. wouldn't have been privy to, you're trying to sort of superimpose or use that um, that analysis method to to look at his works as opposed to an analytical method that he would have used or been privy to at the time. Um, is that sort of like, I'm thinking, remember a few years back, uh, the Fermat's theorem, where we always, you know, we, we read that he solved it uh, on the borders of one of his pages or something. And and it took this mathematician, Andrew Wiles, 300 some odd pages and, and modern computer technology to actually solve it in a reasonable way where we would say, yes, it's, it's uh, solved enough. Um, uh-huh. Is that kind of what you're trying to do with Beethoven, with, with these... This yeah, I think t- to put it simply, and if if I said this without all of the um, you know three hundred pages that I've been writing, <laughs> yeah. I think it would sound alarming, okay. and that's in part why I, why I've had to write three hundred pages on this topic. But the essence is that I think Beethoven actually thought using in in a similar way to how the theory works and describes everything. Like I actually think he's thinking like that. Uh, And so I think that the theory is successful in in part because it, it actually connects with how he was conceptualizing the music. And you're saying that. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, you're saying that because of of his, his, uh, the, 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 the pedagogy that he had, he received that he uh, had in, in bond, you know, with his organist. Yeah, that's part of it, and and yeah, it, it, it's this is a, the hardest part I would say of the dissertation right now because it's a matter of connecting because it, it's a it's a translation issue, right? We're we're using new words to describe some of this stuff, and so I have to say, well, you know, this new word is actually just the same as this old word, old word, um, more or less, and you know, he he wouldn't have used the same terminology necessarily. But just because we're using different terminology, you know, if someone says a a bike and a fachad, like that's a German bike, you know, they're they're both bikes, right? We're, so it's a translation issue rather right. than a an issue of conceptual conceptual difference. Yeah. So then, not to undermine the whole, you know, Kaplan's work and things like this, but mm-hmm. but uh, you know, he made a name for himself with this new way of analyzing, and is it? A re, not a rehashing, but a reinterpretation of a way to analyze 
that Beethoven and others did. It's just, okay, well, this is actually what they were doing. Is, is that kind of yeah. what he's saying? Yeah, I think it's like a, a it's a, it's a, a refinement and a synthesis. Um, I, I think that sometimes when, when we act and we use our intentions, these, these are good questions, by the way, these are, I haven't worked these out fully. Um, but I think when we act with intentions, we may not always be efficient in the way that we, uh, try to accomplish our goals. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I over really time, be, no, go ahead. yeah. No, go ahead. Go well, ahead. yeah, let me, let me, okay. So oh, I guess over time we, we come up with more efficient ways of accomplishing the, our goals. So like our intentions basically. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if I got to sit down with Beethoven, I said, okay, here's how I'm interpreting this passage, blah, 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 blah. And he'd say, well, you know, and if I could speak his language and use his terminology, my impression would, or my thesis is that he would say, yeah, that's exactly it. Right. That's what I intended. Gotcha. Um, yeah. uh, and so you have to reconstruct the history. That means that I have to open his mail quite literally. <laughs> I have to look through his letters and, um, you know, kind of like, what's he writing about? How's he thinking? Um, and then where is he training? I'm, so I'm studying the, the pieces of, of Neef. I'm analyzing some of his pieces. And, have you and learned I'm finding, enough German to... <laughs> well, you speak yeah. German fluently, so it's fine. I speak German pretty well at this point. Um, <laughs> I bet. Yeah, and you have it's, to. It's, yeah, you pretty much have to. But luckily the letters were translated and... Um, one of the one of the but things, it's a special nineteenth century version. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. also old German. Yeah. <laughs> oh, honestly, yeah, I've been reading Fractor treatises lately, and and uh, <laughs> those are fun. Um, for for readers who don't know what Fractor is, it's it looks like hieroglyphics, but it's actually German. <laughs> <laughs> Man, but uh, yeah, that was a real surprise when I was like, oh my god, I have to do this. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wow. Well, one of the but, things I always get hung up on, and it's it's just something I have to come to terms with, and we all do, is it, with hindsight, it's so easy to say, like, all the work that, let's say, Kaplan did, and now you're building on that. Um, <clears throat> and when, when you're done, we'll probably have the same sort of view maybe 20 years later. But whatever he came up with 20 years ago, it, it's so easy to say, well, of course, why didn't somebody come up with that even earlier? You know, I'm surprised uh -huh. that somebody didn't come up with that one year after Beethoven wrote the piece. You know, there would have been plenty of people at the time to talk to and say, hey, this is what we're thinking about. Oh, this is called form function. And, you know, why did yeah. it take 150, 200 years to come up with that? And, and but this is the same thing in sports. You know, you nobody can mm -hmm. can uh, even believe uh, how somebody, you know, let's say when, when was Bannister, like in the 30s or 40s? I don't remember who broke the four minute mile. Nobody could just understand how that would be possible and then he broke yeah. it and then everybody broke broke four minutes so many people after that it's yeah. like well obvious now to see how it's possible but right. nobody did at the time so that's why it took so long yeah well I, and i think this is one of the things too is that like i beethoven's at the forefront uh of formal innovation in music and and uh on a future podcast i, I have some really fun examples like the opus 31 Number three, the hunt. Bum, bum, oh, bum. Yeah. Bum, bum, bum. yeah. Oh, I played that for an audition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a fantastic piece because he, yeah. he starts out the main theme with a credential progression. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what is this about? Uh, and it turns out all of the themes are credential progressions oh, and which requires that. him to like rearrange the, the structure of the, like he, he, he pushes it. 
and so I think the theory lags in part because he's the one that's pushing these forms. Uh-huh. Um, now I will say too, though, that like uh, in my studying of, of physics, like when you when you think about uh, Einstein's relativity, for example, like why you know you think of him coming up with relativity, but relativity is built on the Lorentz transformations and other. Uh, like a long lineage of physics, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to yeah. this point and then you ask a question at that point that that takes you into the solution. That's 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 how I see it at least. And so I, I think the, you know, and Kaplan's very clear that the theory builds on Erwin Ratz, who builds on Schoenberg and Schoenberg's coming out of Vienna and a long tradition there. And so there's a lot of stuff. Now, the problem is, is that over time, all these theories develop various i don't know i'll call them baggage <laughs> like right they're, right they're they're evolving and some people pick up certain baggage and some people pick up other stuff and then sometimes that baggage uh, diverts our attention you know into another idea and sometimes it's a philosophy like and so uh, at the beginning we were talking about you know not philosophy of the organic work i actually think that the organic concept is, is an interesting one because it allows you to look at the work and say, like, how does this all fit together? But I think it prevented Nottebaum for from further inquiry. And I think in the in the in the 40s, the intentional fallacy and everything and all this other stuff has prevented people from from trying to make some of these connections because they figured they didn't have access to the intentions of the composer. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of reasons, you know, philosophy being one of them. Yeah. Well, um, just to uh, kind of and and Oh, uh, we could go. Uh, we're definitely going to have you on again, Tom, because this is <laughs> this is really interesting. I, I'm curious what um, uh, maybe what what kind of feedback have you got? Well, I guess two two quick questions that I hope are quick, but maybe not so much. Um, the mm-hmm. um, um, do you see in music um, your kind of pushback against like this this these postmodern ideas? Um, mm-hmm. Uh, do you do you see that happening and and uh, how do you how is your work along with maybe others um, being received by by you know those of, of different schools? Yeah, okay, great question. So um, I don't know yet. <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough. Uh, now um, I, I should say that uh, Professor Kaplan, William Kaplan, he is he is a anti-intentionalist. Uh, so I'm writing this chapter and mostly to convince him cause he's going to, he has to read it. Uh, I would love for other people to read it too, but I know that he'll read it. And so, um, and he's an anti-intentionalist because he, he learned it from Leonard Meyer with whom he studied and also Carl Dahlhaus. Um, and it's part of his generation, you know, it's and yeah. part of many, many professors generation who grew up in the, you know, studying in the seventies. Um, and so I, I'm very curious to see. I've I've submitted this to a, a conference, and I'm I'm would love to debate this topic. I think that this idea of composer intentionality has the potential to reunite music theory with musicology, in part because it asks us to b- c- connect music analysis to the composers, so connect works back to their composers. And as Joseph Carmen would say, it if you're if you want to study an organism. You have to also study its, its ecology, like where mm-hmm. that organism is, because yeah. that, that its ecology influences the formation of the organism. And so I think if you reconnect the work to the composer, 
then you reconnect historicism and, and functional analysis. They, they really are codependent. I wonder too, and I, I'm not going to throw theorists under the bus because you are a music theorist and uh, yeah. but you're also a concert pianist and um, we all perform and, and we all teach. And I've, um, I've always told my students, you know, theory is important to learn. I happen to really love theory and I, I excelled at that. But um, I feel that maybe the field in and of itself has veered away from, from the practical or pragmatic things of, of how does this theory influence performance and maybe this is a way to draw them back together again um yeah because i find that music theorists almost almost purposefully shun like no I, i'm not going to be a performer i'm not and you know, so i've known some theorists that are good performers you're probably the the best pianist i've ever known who who went into theory you know and, and that's actually oh, a, really it's a very good um attribute that you have that I think will, will help you, you know, in the, in the theory world kind of bridge mm -hmm. the two worlds, but maybe this is a way to go back into, uh, you know, the, the theory has, a, has an applicable reason for, you know, for existing. It's not just in and of itself, this is dry, this is boring. Only a few people ever want to read this stuff. You know, it's, uh, it's yeah. good for performers to say, no, this actually will influence and inform. But the other thing is, I feel that we've been doing that as performers with our students, at least always saying, hey, you have to study theory. Why? Yeah. Uh, I don't have to learn about cores. Let me just play it by ear. Learn. It's like, no, because yeah. there's some, some yeah. reason to it. And it, it informs how you play it. If you know that this five, seven chord is going to a one, oh, it went to a six. Oh, deceptive. Oh, you have to change yeah. your interpretation. <laughs> yeah. It's important yeah. to know the theory. And so I feel that we've been doing this forever. Um, maybe theorists are coming around to that. I don't know. Well, uh, yeah, it's complicated. Uh, I would say there's, there's a lot of different theory sex, uh, mm -hmm. sect, not sex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different, you know, there are performance practice, um, focused theorists, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I will say that, and, and what I know now, um, through the last intense study, I haven't been practicing mu much, but, oh, how I wish I knew that when I was performing the Beethoven sonatas uh -huh. during my master's, like I, I, I just would have learned things so much faster. I would have memorized them more easily. It, it, everything would just have been easier. Like, because yeah. I, I understand the patterns in a way now that I, I just didn't then. Right. It seems, it seems obvious to you now where, where, you know, before you were doing it by rote almost in a way. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. To the best of my theoretical ability. Sure. At the time. Sure. Um, but yeah, that, but that's, that's a good point, Elias. I think ultimately, you know, I would love for my work to be appealing to well, philosophers, music theorists, but also people who say, I, I really love how Beethoven composed and I'd like, uh, I'd like to learn how to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's cool. And then also performers. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Tom, thank you for your time. This has been just a joy. And, and like I said, we gotta, we've got to do it again. I, this is a blast and i always oh, feel wonderful. like a, i, I feel like i got a master class in 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 theory and and I, I appreciate your your teaching man it's great oh well well thanks for for listening it's been a pleasure as always would love to come back fantastic elias thank you again my friend this uh, has we'll, been great yeah i i, I sure love has. pushing you know i i know you tom well and it's great to <laughs> keep pushing maybe you're like gosh stop asking you know no i love it we're friends <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think you gave me my conclusion chapter just now. Good. So thanks. Good. No, it's, it's great. And, and I still have stuff to go through in my mind after. I think I'm going to listen to this later and come up with some like, okay, what do I really think about yeah. the world? No, this so is I, def- I love these sessions. <laughs> this is definitely one of those episodes that, that I think we'll go back to and, and get more from again. So yeah, thanks again. All right. Thanks, well, you guys, thanks for listening. I, and uh, you, this is Mike Levitt with Dr. Elias Pedersen, Tom Posen, and you've been listening to And If Love Remains. You are listening to And If Love Remains.